Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Human eyes we all have. I don't like to think of all these blobs of jelly rolling around in your heads. Face eggs. Oh. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to go deeper into the final episode of the HBO series Succession with open eyes. We are bullshit. You are bullshit. You're fucking bullshit, man. I'm fucking bullshit. She's bullshit. It's all fucking nothing. And we're so happy to be joined by our colleague Joy Press, who has just interviewed Jeremy Strong for his take on the finale. But more on that later. Hello, Joy. Hi, guys. Before we dive in, let's do a quick recap for the last time. Uh, a beat-up Roman has sought sanctuary with his mother in her Barbados hellhole. What the fuck happened, man? Oh, yeah, I just had a discussion with some of your pals about the merits of liberal democracy. Greg becomes an unlikely news source thanks to a translation app. And could I quad it up, like full quad? Take your shot, buddy. Shiv is about to get backstabbed by Matson, and the siblings reunite for the big board meeting. Lucas is interviewing for an alternative U.S. CEO. He's fucking you. And that alternative American CEO... None other than Tom, Shiv's husband of convenience. Good luck, motherfucker, because we have the numbers, yeah? Good fucking luck. With Waystar Royco control in the balance, the board is tied between Kendall and the Gojo deal. Shiv? Shiv has the deciding vote and breaks Kendall's brain. I'm the eldest boy! I am the eldest boy! And, you know, it, this, it mattered to him. He wanted this to go on. Well, I mean, she's the bloodline, though. Kendall is out, and Tom, yes, that Tom, is the successor. Let's party. Okay. Let's party. Yes. 
Joy, Chris and I got a chance to talk on Sunday night right after the Succession series finale about what we were surprised by, what the kind of general mood was. But I didn't get a chance to talk to you about that until now. So, Joy, how did it end for you? Was it satisfying? You know, to me, it felt a little bit like a season finale as opposed to a series finale. Ooh, interesting. I was happy, but it didn't entirely startle me in the way that I would have predicted it would. I really thought it would pull the rug out from under everything, and it didn't quite do that. Did you see the Tom scans of it all coming? Well, you know, I, I, jokingly, um, earlier in the year, I think before the season started, some of us at Vanity Fair um, made our guesses about uh, who would take over Waystar. And I, I jokingly chose Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, good choices. That was really, yeah. Those are pretty accurate. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't really think uh, that was how it was going to play out, but I felt like there was no way that the children could win. It just didn't feel like a show in which they were going to let any of them win. And it made more sense for the outsiders to take over. So, yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, I I did guess. Yeah, it's a bit like the end of Hamlet where like Hamlet and all of the main characters are dead. And yeah. like a random guy is like, oh, Fortinbras or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It uh, takes sorry. the throne. Chris and I were talking about Shakespeare on Sunday night. So I guess it's just in our heads. Well, let's go kind of more into the specifics of the episode. I think what I want to talk about, what we should talk about first, is this kind of bait and switch that the episode does, where we have several scenes of the three main Roy children. I'm sorry, Connor, you're not a main Yeah, kid. he is um, the eldest boy, but he's he is, not a main yeah. <laughs> Roy child. Um, they're kind of getting along in a way that feels almost like a reversion to, what, their adolescence? Obviously, the episode eventually undoes all that. Mm-hmm. But what did either of you kind of think? Because uh, my, my reaction was... I felt uncomfortable by that sweetness, by that that that, that playfulness. Uh, I so I had uh, sort of the opposite reaction where I was like, "Wow!" Once they made a decision, once they all got behind Kendall and they let go of their own power-hungry neuroses and their need to control, they actually really get along. They actually are great siblings. It felt like... Because uh, they're all awful. Because they're awful. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they're all awful. And they're doing these, yeah. like, playing these awful pranks. It felt like, you know, an 80s sleepover. Caroline comes down, she wags her finger at them. Like, it felt like a sitcom and like sort yeah. of like the best way, this sort of fantasy life of a world where if they weren't all so terrible and could let go of their own obsession with Logan and continuing his legacy, they could all just like have fun and be rich weirdos, you know, making slop in the kitchen with each other. But of course, the bubble has to be burst, right? It was like that. The show could have ended there and then it would have felt completely false. It would have been like, that's not the Roy kids. But then ultimately, they showed who they truly are with the backstabbing and in the boardroom scene. That playful cruelty was taught to them by their parents, but there are other things also taught to them by their parents, specifically Mm -hmm. Logan, that eventually couldn't be suppressed. The hard-charging kind of messianic, like, master of the universe thing that Logan possessed in spades, like, eventually came roaring back. Joy, did you believe it when the kids were on the raft and said, here you go, Kendall, you can have it? You know, there have been a few of those moments, right, where they kind of join forces and if we believe them, we're, we're sort of Charlie Brown, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because oh, we're just, you know, <laughs> going to, uh, you know, have our heads bashed against the wall. But I, I feel like it's part of the, the brilliance of the show, the way that the writers combine the comedy, familial, 
interactions where you do have this warmth and you do have this familiarity. They are kids who grew up together and they're very funny together. There've been a few scenes like that. I remember a scene on a yacht in a previous episode where they're just, you know, being ridiculously silly together. You know, you can picture them joining forces and, you know, you kind of do love them for a minute. I mean, the the licking of Peter's cheese. I mean... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> How could you not be charmed for a minute by those scenes in the kitchen? And it just kind of makes you more vulnerable to the horror because no, I mean, that was never where they were going to land. They can't, they can't live in that warm place. It's too uncomfortable for them. Even as children, clearly those moments were few and far between. Mm-hmm. But they did exist, which I'm glad. I think that made the ending all the more sort of devastating watching. And I think we've said this a few times. It's like they haven't really grown. They haven't changed. They're kind of like sitcom characters in that they make the same mistakes season after season after season. They haven't really grown or matured. And we see that when they get into the full-on brawl at the very end of the episode that's like children fighting over a toy, right? Waystar Royco is the toy. Kendall was going to get the toy. And at the last moment, Shiv was like, I don't want you to have the toy. If I can't have the toy, nobody can no have, the toy. Has the toy. Yeah. Nobody gets the toy. You know, uh, Jesse Armstrong in a sort of post little video after the episode on HBO, he kind of said that Roman at the end when he's drinking his martini and has a weird sort of smirk on his face mm-hmm. has really just kind of come back full circle to where we meet him in the pilot episode where, mm-hmm. he, you know, this whole past couple of years of dynastic power struggle was just a weird interruption in his otherwise just louche, playboy, <laughs> billionaire. nihilist, billionaire lifestyle. Yeah. But I also think that there is a deeper portrait of Roman that emerged in the latter part of this season, where in seasons past, it had been alluded to that Roman probably suffered the most at the hands of his dad, but also other adults in his life. And clearly in this episode, a lot of that, and in the, and in the penultimate funeral episode, like a lot of that has come burbling to the surface. You know, Roman has hid out, hidden out at his mother's house in Barbados because he doesn't have his dad to retreat to yeah. anymore. And by the end, he's telling Kendall, none of this matters. We don't, we're nothing. It's all just glue and bad shows and fake news <laughs> and whatever. Do you believe that Roman has had some kind of healthy epiphany about who he is and what he's been all about? I'm going to go on the side of yes, but only because... Roman reverts back to his childhood state and basically starts grieving the fact that he'll never be CEO and starts processing the fact that he'll never be Logan and that he'll never be the man that he maybe didn't even want to be but felt pressure to be because Kendall and him were in competition and Logan, you know, pitted the kids against each other. I think Kendall was kind of right when he said Roman never really wanted it. He just (laughs) was in the conversation because it's expected of kids of these scions and billionaires to sort of ascend to the throne. I think Kendall was sort of right there. And I think because Roman sort of had that come to Jesus moment of looking at himself in the mirror, looking at his stitches, the stitches break open. We sort of see with the stitches his own emotion sort of come flowing through, come bursting out. And he's able to at least sort of get to the other side of the Waystar Royco of it all and realize it's over. It's over for him. Mm -hmm. It's done. And he's in that place and he's not being delusional anymore. Kendall is Mr. Delusional up in cloud nine, thinks he can sort of give a terrible speech to the board that just says, Gojo sucks. I'm Kendall Roy. Give me the company. Thinks that's going to work. That's not going to work. The best thing, so Shiv found a way to sort of win. Kendall got destroyed. And Roman gave up, which yeah. was the healthiest yeah. thing probably. And that gets you to the other side. To it do. Gets, yeah. It's an interesting episode in that, like, 
I mean, for a variety of reasons, but Armstrong and his writers had to make a choice. Like they had to, someone had to do the thing that ended this narrative of, of Gojo and the sale and all that. Joy, were you, how did you feel about it being Shiv? Did that track with her arc this season or over the course of the whole show? You know, I think what happened to Shiv is, seems like the most controversial thing on, at least on my social media, because, I mean, it's devastating. And I'm not sure that for me, it feels emotionally accurate to my my read on Shiv, that she it just sort of chooses Tom um, and chooses to sort of become the wife. But, you know, there is a way in which both she and Tom are constantly doing a calculus of, you know, what is the, you know, most expeditious thing for me to do and what's the next step for me to get to power. It is possible that she sees, you know, having a husband in control and the father of her baby as, you know, a way for her to get the closest to power. But either way, it's a completely devastating kind of, you know, ending for Shiv. I was want to ask, because I've seen this both ways online, and I'm sort of of two minds about it. Do we think that she went into the boardroom knowing what she was going to do? Do you think it was a pre-calculated? I've seen some people be like, she talked to Tom before, so it was a calculated move, mm. and she was always going to go. But then I just rewatched the scene right before we did this, and I'm like, it seems like she's making the decision in the moment, and she could have gone either way. And then when Kendall lies about that's it. The vehicular manslaughter, that was it. That was like, I cannot trust you. Yes. You're willing to go to such a depth. You're pathetic. You're pathetic. Yeah. I could never give this over to you. Shiv, don't do this. No. You can't do this, no. Shiv. No, absolutely yes. not, man. No. Absolutely not. No. Why? No, why? What, just... I love you. I really, I love you, but I cannot fucking stomach you. And I feel like that's when she made the decision and everything you said in terms of like Tom and her baby and being sort of like the right hand to the king and the Lady Macbeth part two of it all, that comes with choosing Tom, but it didn't seem to be about Tom. It seemed to be about Kendall... Stopping Kendall. Stopping Kendall. She can see what Tom's motivations are. Mm -hmm. She understands Tom. And, you know, Kendall is just a broken person and is not necessarily in control of himself from her perspective. I mean, from all of our perspectives, you know, mm -hmm. he's a delusional person. And I think for her, she maybe is thinking at that moment, okay, I can work with Tom. Like, I get Tom. Yeah. But Kendall is just beyond my control. Mm. She can't stomach him. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think that... The Tom character was further complicated in this episode because there is a scene that is about Shiv that Shiv is not in, mm -hmm. uh, where he, Tom and Matson are having this horrid dinner, and basically Matson's like, "I want to fuck her on a little bit. Is this making you uncomfortable? I'm sorry if it's weird." Or, no, no, yeah. we're men. Yeah, I can't deal with the mess of that. You know? So then I was thinking, well, if I can have fucking anyone in the world. <laughs> Why don't I get the guy who put the baby inside her instead of the baby lady? Yeah. Just right. This show has been commenting on sexism in this world mm -hmm. throughout its run, but really especially in recent episodes. And I think that's important because I think that is a dynamic absolutely at play in these worlds that should not go unmentioned. But Tom doesn't... I thought it would, be, would have been corny if he rushed to defend his wife. Yeah. And, and women in general, I suppose. He would never. But he doesn't go fully in, except that he does because he accepts it. So, like, what are we supposed to make of Tom's character? Like, is he even worse than he was 
earlier or is this just kind of on par with his character? I mean, I think for me, it comes back to that scene and his being a striver. He says it, I'm a grinder. He -hmm. will do whatever it takes to get however far he can go because he worries, he was he worries all the time. He's worried that it's all going to go away at any second because he's the only character there, even including Greg. He's the only person that has no safety net once this gets. By now, he probably has some safety net because he's been a wealthy and successful person. But family-wise, he really doesn't have a safety net once if it were to get pulled out from under him. So he's willing to do whatever it is. He even lets Madsen say, hey, I want to fuck your wife. That's why she can't have the job. Is that okay? That's sort of like... um, And Tom says, yeah, we're men. Yeah, we're men. He doesn't say, wait, no, that's my wife. Wait, no. He's willing to do anything, sacrifice anything. But also, just moments before that, (laughs) Shiv has also said really horrible things about Tom to Matson and is willing to, and in fact, the terrible, horrible things that she says about Tom are the things that make Matson want to put him in charge. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because, oh, well, he's just an absolute doormat who will do literally anything, including letting me sleep with his wife. Yeah. So, you know, they're all horrendous people. And in this show, the fact that there's a portrait of misogyny running through this world and the fact that Shiv is a horrible person can coexist. Yeah. You know, she's not a some great girl boss role model. <laughs> she's as morally corrupt as any of the men are. But at the same time, she never had a chance. She never had a chance in this world to, to take over. Two things can be true at once. Very. <laughs> yeah. I also don't think that this marriage of convenience that is the last thing we see of the two of them is going to last. They also, their future is very uncertain. And I think that was very deliberate on the writer's part. Like, we don't know if Mencken doesn't become president, this whole thing might be moot. Yeah, this whole thing could fall apart. But didn't you see, or this is how I read that last sort of shot with Tom and Shiv. The power has always been in Shiv's. Yep. She's always had more power than him. I'm better. She'll tell him, I'm better than you. You're not good enough for me. And then, whoop, now in the final shot, Tom is the most powerful person. He lays out his hand like a king would. And she accepts like a queen, right? Mm -hmm. It's giving Scepter. It's giving Lady Macbeth part two. And it's sad because I think that... that Shiv thinks that she has more control over Tom than she really does. And I think she thinks she'll have more access. And that might be true. But ultimately, Tom is the one who has the scepter and the crown. And he's the one who puts out his hand and is like, are you with me or are you not with me? And she sort of like tacitly accepts, which is sort of deeply sad. And she becomes her mother. Everyone's been saying that. But it's even sadder than that in a way. Yeah. There are vague vibes also of the end of The Graduate. Mm. She's yes. sitting in the back of the car being like, what now? Yeah. What do I do? Like, I mean, the thing is, we should not forget that the three, well, all, four, I guess four of the Roy kids, like, they, they all just made like a billion dollars yeah. each or something. <laughs> like, do they still Like, own if Pierce? she wanted to leave <laughs> this, she could. She yeah. could just be like, oh, never mind. I'm moving to Barbados with my mom or I'm going, we're literally anywhere. Yeah. Shopping in Milan with Marsha. And yet she takes his hand. Yeah. Because the, the, these people are addicted to this game. You know, and I think that we should turn to Kendall, the real tragic figure of this whole show, not just this episode or this season. You know, we see him back of his head kind of mirroring the back of Logan's head that's in all the succession promo, contemplating, I don't know what, not jumping into the water because Colin is following him and he would stop that. But I don't know. Do we think that in the imagined world after this show has ended, in the imagined Roy lives, does Kendall try again? Is he, is he, is this, does the cycle continue itself to that? degree? 
Well, I mean, not maybe for this company, but just <laughs> in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw this online and I know, Joy, you spoke with Jeremy, so you might already know this or have heard this, but I heard that there was a take that he did where he tried to like run over and dive into the water and Colin, the bodyguard at the very uh, end, stops yeah. him, which would also be fitting, would be a fitting end. But I definitely don't think this is the last scheme that Kendall Roy will come up with to try to get back at Shiv or try to grasp for power. I do think that we saw the end of the Roy children as any sort of trifecta or unit. I think Shiv voting against Kendall, unforgivable, no more uncle Kendall. It's done. That's end game. That's done. Don't you think also, though, that the fact that Logan is dead really kind of changes the whole situation for all of them? Because so much of the show was them wanting to prove to daddy Mm -hmm. that they could do this and that I'm your guy, put me in. That was the whole like never ending saga was like, dad pretending like, yes, you're the one, you know, you're the, you're the boy and you're the girl, you're the one pinky. And, you know, so now that he's gone, there's some weird, very deep rooted motivation that I think disappears for all of them. Yeah. I think it's why you seek uh, Roman so unmoored, you know, mm. a couple episodes ago, watching a kind of deep faked video of his father insulting Roman. And like, he, like he was so addicted to that relationship, the pain of it, the occasional fleeting moments of tenderness that that his father would show him. I think it's trickier for Shiv in terms of the absence of Logan. I mean, I think she is now turning to face having to build the new legacy of the Roy Wamsgams dynasty, whatever that might look like. And in Kendall's case, I don't know. I see him licking his wounds, certainly. But two days later, a week later, that hip hop's blaring again. Yeah. He's manically hired a bunch of staff to do some crazy thing, and maybe that's just what he does for the rest of his life. Yeah, is just burns through money. You know, maybe he weirdly just kind of becomes Connor. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. And speaking of the legacy, I do. I don't want to brush over like Roman may have said the most devastating, most evil thing of the episode when he came for Kendall's kids. Yeah, horrible, horrible. I'm the, I'm the bloodline. We're all the fucking No, bloodline. I just mean if you're going to play that card, Dad's view was yours weren't real. What the fuck did you just say? Well, just not real. Real. Um, well, that's just what Dad said. I'm just saying what Dad said. Well, don't say it, you fucking cuck. They are a pair of randos. One is a buy-in. The other is half robber, half some filing cabinet guy, right? The show loves to say the worst possible things. And we see that with Tom and Shiv all the time. It's like, how do you come back from saying the worst possible things to your partner or your family member. And they always seem to be able to do it. But I think there's a reason why the show ended with that scene. I don't see even Kendall and Roman coming back from that. Yeah, It was so, so uniquely devastating. I don't feel like that line has been crossed between the brothers, really. And it was just, it was really sort of sort of crazy to end on that note. Well, when we had Best Levin on the show, which feels like a million years ago, but it was like just a few <laughs> yeah, episodes ago, true. our coworker at VF, um, she said that the, the Murdoch daughter does not speak to the other, to the brothers, right? Or, or, or in Lachlan and his James, brother, they, yeah. James are really estranged They're as well. Really estranged, so like, they don't speak. there is a real world counterpart where these siblings just don't have any kind of relationship. And now their financial relationship is for the most part severed. Yeah. So like they are really spinning off into their own trajectories. Now that we're at the end of not just the season, but the series, I'm curious what both of you think about, like, where, if any, is the show's sort of humanism? Like, what what has it been trying to tell us about us or our world? Or is it not? Is it just kind of trying to be this, like, grim reflection of the 0.01%? I don't know. I kind of feel like 
the grim point at the end of the season was, or the series was a kind of a hopeless one, which was like, I know this is terrible and we watch all these oligarchs just get richer and richer and do worse and worse. And we think we get one, but then they're just replaced or they just kind of come up with a new scheme. Like, what was your sort of philosophical takeaway from Succession as a whole? Sadly, it's also a grim one. It's also a nihilistic one. It's Roman saying, we're all bullshit. Right. I think that has to be the takeaway to me just because it's sort of, that's the undercurrent. That's the subtext of the whole show for four seasons that none of them really have it. And yet each child thinks that they have a stake to the claim of what Logan created just because they're a kid of this, you know, scion, this titan of industry. And at the end of the day, at least with these kids, but I do think it's a grander statement about the state of finance and power and who controls what. It's all bullshit. You kind of see right through it. And it's random and it's a bunch of men, basically exclusively men, with terrible temperaments who do terrible things, making irrational emotional decisions all the time based on the flavor of the month, the flavor of the week. And Roman, at least, and it's weird to say that Roman sort of like gets to sum up the series, but it seems by the end of the series, he sees through it enough to have taken himself out of the rat race. And get a martini in the afternoon. Which, like, if I had that kind of money, it would be nothing but afternoon martinis for the rest of my short life because my liver would give out. (laughs) But, like, so true. But, like, and I think he was alluding to that earlier in the season. Why aren't we buying jet skis and sushi? Like, what what are we doing this for? And he Mm -hmm. finally realized that, which weirdly, I feel like Roman, like you said, was the key to this sort of. I don't want to call it a moral argument, but like the sort of philosophy of the show, which was like, this is bullshit. It's powerful bullshit. But like, if you have the money, if you're not going to give it away to charity or whatever, which none of these people are going to do, you might as well just enjoy it and stop fucking with the world. Well, and Connor was the closest to doing that. You know, he had his ranch and, you know, he was collecting what, you know, Napoleon's Mm -hmm. penises and um, (laughs) his strange, his strange... You know, and then Connor got sucked into it, you know, trying to run for president. But I thought it was really interesting to have the um, election episode not be the ending, right? So it set up what the stakes were. It set up the complete sort of moral (laughs) dissolution of all of these characters who, you know, really didn't stand for anything. I mean, Shiv could pretend that she was on the left and all of that and cared. She didn't really care. Kendall ends up, you know, not really caring, even though it could be horrifying for his uh, his children. And so you end up in this kind of final face-off where, as Chris said, I mean, it, it is all bullshit and none of them have any meaningful ideas for the world. I mean, Matt's in clearly doesn't plan to change anything, really. I mean, he puts Tom in place and he's just gonna, you know, rake in the money. He doesn't have anything that he cares about. So, you know, yes, it's an incredibly cynical take. And by sort of taking it one step on from the election back to this family, you just get a sense of how they reflect on the chasm of the people who, you know, have the money and control all of the power in in our culture. I found something cathartic about that cynicism because, Mm -hmm. like, the transfer of power to Manson is, like, that's what we did. Like, Wall Street still runs a lot of (laughs) shit, but we also gave a lot to Silicon Valley, which is kind of being run like Wall Street because they're all interconnected. And, like, that feels very true to life. That, like, here's just another blustering idiot. I don't think Logan was an idiot, but, like, a lot of idiots around him Mm -hmm. who claims to Tom, I know everything. 
I don't need anyone to give me any ideas, let alone a woman. Yeah. But it's like, no, you're right, Joy. Like, he's just going to kind of, this is all about money. Matson is not some grand innovator. Certain people who have space rocket companies in our real world are also <laughs> just about money yeah. in, in, in the long term. Uh, you know, it is grim, but I think that sitting down with the show in its final minutes and hours and have them be like, no, we, we're with you. I know occasionally it seemed like we were kind of having a little too much fun with these horrible people. Mm. But in the end, like, we're all in this. I mean, look, the people who make Succession aren't poor. Yeah. But like, we're in relatively this together. And isn't it horrible <laughs> that this is all happening? Oh, well. Which, you know, oh, well might sound kind of too pessimistic. But like, it feels apt to where we are. And yeah. I liked that about it. I mean, it seems particularly funny that it's happening during a writer strike and during a moment <laughs> right. when, yeah. you know, Hollywood labor is in the ascendant and sort of on the precipice of some kind of massive uprising to, you know, to have this this show that is so beautifully well-written kind of come to its ending. Totally. And I think it's even in a, in a maybe even slightly more cynical way of looking at it, while it's all about money, it's not even about money. It's just about winning. It's yeah. really, at the end of the day... Money's just the money. marker of victory. Yes, yeah, money's the marker the... of victory, but it's about winning. It's playground. I mean, I think that's what was so great about the final sort of scene and and even the, uh, the nighttime hangout scene and whatnot. None of these kids had to ever mature or grow into adults because they were given everything that they wanted. They're still spoiled brats, right? So They thought all... they were little adults, though, <laughs> but they got yeah. proven wrong, basically. Yes, exactly. They thought yeah. they were little adults with their little briefcases and their blazers. You <laughs> yeah. wear a blazer, you yeah. think that you, you know, you say the right things and you sit at the table and you think that you're an adult. But when it comes down to it, they were three little children squabbling and sometimes getting along as siblings do. And then ultimately fighting and just trying to win, just trying to beat the other one, however, by hook or by crook. And there are a lot of casualties, I mean, some literal casualties, but a lot of people got hurt along the way. But ultimately, the three people that ended up losing the most, Kendall, Roman, and and Chip, from a, if you think about what she aspired to and what she's landed at. They finally became what their father told them they were, unserious um, people yeah. with a lot of money. Completely. And that was it. But I do re- the lot of money thing. I And I do think the show, I see what you mean, Joy, in terms of like season finale versus series finale. And there were some things that like are sort of, well, whatever happened to the Pierce deal? <laughs> like, sure. like yeah. do they own that? But ultimately, I thought most of the threads were sewn up in a way that felt, if not emotionally satisfying, it felt correct enough. Tom letting Greg back into the fold, even after, you know, he betrayed him. That sort of felt correct. Tom and Shiv's loveless marriage continuing into oblivion felt correct. Roman and the Martini, Roman and Jerry, that being weird and terrible. I struggle to think what more I would have wanted from the end of the series. And I don't think Succession is the type of show to like jump 10 years in the future and show us what, you know. I worried they were going to do some sort of montage like that. Yeah, me too. But I'm glad they ended where they did. I mean, I maybe would have liked a post credit scene of Marsha doing something fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's shopping in Milan, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like, just it's just like a quick scene of her being like, check please, at like a, a Milanese cafe or something. You know, just like a little bit, like she's she's she's, uh, yeah. she's where she's supposed to be. I want to see Willa's cow print couch, her redecoration. That's a, that's going to be an age. Well, because now HGTV is part of Warner Discovery, yeah. so we can get Willa's oh, yeah. house show, we house her, design show. I think Willa, Willa should definitely have a, have a, a spinoff house 
show. <laughs> you know, and I, I appreciate the ambiguity of the ending in some ways. If you think of like Sopranos as this legendarily controversial ending, which people that I know still fight about to this day, you know, whether it was um, great or the worst ever. And I, I feel like there was something really wonderful about ending in this frozen moment of horror, really, um, at least for, for Shiv and for Kendall, who is just trapped on that bench in the water, uh, staring at the water with, you know, Colin kind of uh, hovering behind him. I did think that was you know, quite an amazing way to end. Still Watching will be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Jeremy Strong and we'll assess if any of us made a correct prediction about who would be the successor. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheik. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Poor Kendall Roy. He got a meal fit for a king... But that meal ended in dysentery. For the past four seasons, actor Jeremy Strong has received acclaim for his portrayal of the power-hungry tragic hero of the series. And our own Joy Press got a chance to talk to him. I did. Jeremy was very generous with his time and willing to go deep and talk about the finale. Here's our conversation. I sort of hid in the back of a room last night and and watched it again. It's difficult for me to watch. It's a sort of... uh, disaster in slow motion for him and excruciating for me to see it all unfold the way that it does. I found myself wishing that things would happen differently. Yes. And it seems at various points that things could happen differently. I mean, that's sort of the genius of the show. Yeah. And the beauty of that episode in particular, I mean, the way in which Jesse brings us all together in Barbados in that kitchen and you feel you know, that, that moment on the dock, and that was an improvised line. I forget who said it, Happy Ken. You know, you, you see this character smile, maybe for the first time. I can't really th- think of another time where there was that kind of genuine, unadorned happiness and sense of this is actually the thing that this person both wants and needs, which is rare that those two align. Usually what we want and need are, are such a, at such cross purposes. But to go from 
that moment of rest and togetherness and unity and almost childlike joy to having that all being smashed apart so violently on the rocks. I was going to ask you about that moment on the raft. I mean, it is incredible, that smile, that grin on his face. It's like the moment of of his life, right? Where everything finally... Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is the moment of his life. It feels like, you know, it's ha- it's happened, the thing. You know, the, the, the thing that his father promised him in the candy kitchen in Bridgehampton when he was seven years old, which is both a promise and a kind of death sentence. But his whole life has been spent in pursuit of this elusive thing that they give to him only 15 pages later to take it away. Did that scene play out in different ways? I mean, you said that was improvised. I mean, you're in the water. No, sure. I mean, one of the wonderful things about working on that show was was how much freedom and latitude we had to search for the truth of any given scene. Um, I think, you know, that the, the script, especially in this episode, the script is always very tight. And I think we all we're we're all pretty diligent about it. But I think, you know, Shiv had a line, you can smile, bitch. And that was the end of the scripted dialogue. And so, you know, holding their hands and just whatever that moment became and the fullness of that moment. And we were in Barbados. And I think that was our last night or second to last night of filming the series. And there was a feeling of. You know, I think the boom operator was like straddling, not a wakeboard. You know, it was like there was a whole, an armada of crew members floating around on different improvised flotation devices around us trying to capture the scene. But it it was a beautiful moment that I find completely devastating knowing where it's going. Exactly. And having had that meal fit for a king scene come after That seems like a fun scene to have ended with rather than one of the grim existential scenes. It was. It was. I loved doing that scene. And it's rare that I didn't feel an obligation as an actor to carry a kind of tremendous weight with me into any scene. You know, this was a scene where the character's at, at ease and enjoying the company of his brother and sister. So it allowed me to enjoy the scene in a different way and... You know, and my God, they put the nastiest shit you can possibly imagine into that blender. And so, you know, every take, I had to retch and go outside and retch and then jump in the ocean to reset. But it was, it was fun. You actually drank what they put in that blender. I was hoping that you were drinking some alternative. Yeah, dude. No, I guess my feeling is, for me at least... I would not be committed enough to what that character wants in that moment if I, I wouldn't understand it if I didn't drink that thing. And she's saying, we'll give this to you if you drink this thing. So I guess, yeah, I, I, that's just me, but I think it's important to be committed to what the character. It was like a test and you had to pass that test. A few times. Yeah. I mean, they just, just, Mark knew at a certain point he had to call cut before then, because if he didn't call cut, I'm going to do it. They're just so like siblings kind of playing. Yeah, I, I love those moments. I mean, they teach you a lot about the possibility that they have with each other as a family 
But I guess part of the tragedy of the show, part of what Jesse is writing about, is this sort of commingling of of holding and hurting, you know, of love and violence. Like they can't, they don't have the ability to, they need to break whatever that is or destroy it or sabotage it. And, you know, the, the, when I hold Roman, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing him and I'm crushing him at the same time, which you could say is part of the love language that they learned in this family. You know, there was never a time where the other foot dropped. And so they have learned Shiv and Roman, Shiv in, in this case, can't, yeah, can't express love without ex- without also expressing a kind of cruelty. And we betray all of us, our own capacity to love. In the kitchen scene, I mean, it's very playful. Roman dumps uh, the smoothie on Ken's head. It's it, That's like a, a kind of fun, playful expression of affection. And then, you know, that scene you just mentioned where Kendall's crushing Roman until he bleeds is kind of the the inverse side of that, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's a mirror of that. Yeah. I wondered if that cruelty is kind of what Logan was looking for in Kendall all along. I think so. I mean, I do think part of what, what I felt was so incredible about the writing of this episode. And, you know, in this moment, I was thinking about this last night, you know, here we are in the middle of this writer's strike and we're nothing without the writers, nothing. If this show is a chronicle of our time, that's, you know, there, but for the grace of those writers go any of us, you know, that took this character really where we've seen him brought to a precipice or these moments of insolubility so many times at this point, he's just lost everything, his children, He's lost his marriage. He's lost the person that he loved. He's lost his father. He's lost his brother and sister. He's lost the only thing he ever wanted in his life, which is to to be CEO and to follow in his father's footsteps. And he's also, in a terrible, irrevocable way, lost his moral compass and, and moral core. You know, we've seen that slowly eroded over time. And then finally, the, the kicker really being in that scene during the vote when Shiv says he killed someone so he can't do it. And the pivot and the ability to lie, to say and do whatever it takes to achieve what he wants. Uh, somebody called Logan a machine for the completion of aims. And we see him become his father to me in that moment. You know, when Logan says on the boat in Croatia about the waiter who died, Andrew Dodd, no real person involved. To me, Jesse brought Kendall to that same moment. When I say I wasn't even there, I never got in the car. It's tantamount to me saying no real person involved. I'm able to just erase this thing, pretend it away as if it didn't happen, as if it didn't exist. And in that moment, I think the character loses whatever is left of an ethical, moral core, and there's no coming back from that. The fall of this character, I mean, to me, for me, not not necessarily for Jesse or for anyone else, this show could have been called The Slow Inexorable Death of Kendall Roy. We see the dying of the light in this person, and then we, and we also, in tandem, see 
this collapse and dying of a light in late stage capitalism and in this country at this moment. But to have that embodied in a character is just a, a staggering achievement by Jesse Armstrong and these writers. It was also really interesting that the election and and some of this moral jeopardy and all of that, that was not the ending. Yeah, it could have been. Jesse wrote something in the stage directions in episode three, when our father dies. And I'm on the boat on the phone with Frank. And I ask him, is he gone? And Jesse wrote after I hang up the phone, I'm going to butcher this, the very lyrical, beautiful thing that he wrote. But there's Kendall basically standing at the crossroads of history at the sharp tip of Manhattan, looking at the financial district and Wall Street and the Statue of Liberty and feeling at the sort of the crosshairs of, of this moment in history and that the worst thing has happened. And he's still there, like the world is off axis, but he's OK. And he feels as if he could either be a wraith or a super being. and. Those two things, I think, I tried to carry with me for the rest of the season, mainly leaning into the super being, Kendall, which we see him try to be through Living Plus, through his sort of unerring drive to become king. And then in the end, maybe even in the last four, three minutes of the show, he becomes a wraith which is really always what's underneath. You know, when, when Roman says we're nothing, I think, I guess that's the, that's always the fear, right? That's in a way, that's the fear underneath a lot of great ambitions. Uh, it's why Kendall needs, as he says in the beginning of this season, something super fucking absorbing in his life. You know, he needs an eiger to climb. Otherwise he will just, backslide into into nothingness as you're as you were describing that direction that jesse gave you and him looking out over the water i was thinking about how much water is a, a leitmotif in the in the show i mean between cruise yeah, ships sure. drowning the waiter yeah. the near death in the pool and you know and then this final moment sitting by the east river tell me about that last scene and and what you think all of that water is about you know, I was watching it last night and I was thinking about, I say something to Hugo in episode nine, that life is contingent. And I was thinking about how contingent filmmaking is, how much there is that is left to, yeah, exigencies of the day and how many audibles there are on the day. And also making television, you're up against it all the time. You don't have the luxury of time ever. We don't have the luxury of time to prepare scripts and internalize them. And the directors and the actors, we don't have the luxury of time to spend on any given scene. It, it, so that day we were shooting down in Battery Park and it was like, I think it was the coldest day in like a century. I'd never been so cold in my whole life. I remember thinking, I don't think we can shoot the scene today because this is just going to hijack this what this scene needs to be and then of course you have to accept in the sense like every wall is a door the scene is telling you that it's going to be this and you need to this is what it is and i found myself thinking about the ninth circle of hell which in in dante's inferno is a is a frozen lake you know the worst part of hell 
is ice cold. And so that scene became about that in a way. I was numb. I couldn't feel anything. It was so cold, it was almost burning. And scripted, it was meant to end with an aerial shot where we see Kendall walking and we see Colin following him. And the other contingency that I'm talking about is how collaborative this medium is, especially when you work with generous and incredible collaborators like Jesse and Mark Mylod. And I begged them, can we go to the water? I, I, I want to keep walking. I want to go to the water. And so we ended up in this sort of place at the very, very bottom of kind of the bitter end of Battery Park, facing this water that I'd never seen. I'd never seen waves like that off of, you know, the, in the East River. It felt biblical. And there was this terrible clanging on some scaffolding nearby. And it was like, I don't know, sometimes the movie gods just align and open up something to you. And I think we all felt a sense of, you know, we didn't know what we were looking for, but something profound happened. We only had about eight minutes to shoot that piece at the end because the sun was going down. And uh, yeah, so the water, it was calling to me. It felt right to all of us. Uh, it has been something. I mean, listen, the John Berriman poem that Jesse has referred to and named these finales after, John Berryman himself uh, died by suicide jumping into a frozen river. I tried to go into the water. After we cut, I got up from that bench and went as fast as I could over the barrier and onto the pilings. And the actor playing Colin raced over. We didn't, I didn't know I was going to do that. He didn't know. Raced over and, and uh, stopped me. And I don't know whether in that moment I felt that Kendall just wanted to die. I think he did. Or if he wanted to be saved by who is essentially a proxy of his father, maybe unconsciously he wanted to be saved. To me, I think if he could be saved, then maybe he has a chance to keep going. But to me, what happens at the board vote is an extinction level event for this character. There's no coming back from that. But what I love about the way Jesse chose to end it, I think he thought about using that moment that we, that we captured on the day. It's a much stronger ending philosophically and has more integrity to what Jesse's overall very bleak vision is of mankind, which is that fundamentally people don't really change. They don't do the spectacular dramatic thing. Instead, there's a kind of doom loop that we're all stuck in. And Kendall is trapped in this sort of silent scream, maybe forever, with Colin there as both a bodyguard and a jailer. I don't think he could kill himself if he even tried. He wouldn't have been able to. I also don't know if he would have had the courage to actually go in that water because my God, it was, it was, uh, it would have been hard to do, but it's all in there. And I think you even feel on a cellular level when I saw it, I felt it, the intention or the longing to cross that threshold. You wonder if that might happen. It, and, and the way he 
leaves us with a kind of ambivalence and which stays true to his vision. Still Watching will be back in just a moment. And when we return, we'll see who got the closest to predicting the end of the series. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Well, before we close out, Chris, I don't know if you remember this, but back, I think, episode one of this season, okay. we had promised that we, you know, in predicting who would be the eventual successor, you and I were making our own predictions, mm-hmm. kind of week in, week out. That mm, rubric sort of faded away because the we didn't know that Logan was going to die. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of... The, a lot of the, twists and turns this season. Yeah, the show's DNA mutated a bit this season. But we did make a, a steady amount of predictions and we said, I guess the winner was going to get a plate of sushi yes. to honor Roman Roy. Yes, and um, Jerry on the... On the on her speedboat, on her on her jet ski <laughs> on her with jet a plate ski. of sushi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So over the course of the season, and Joy, you did, you know, predict something related to Jerry last week. So you do count in this, uh, <laughs> you know, very loose competition. But over the course of the season, I was convinced Connor was going to win the presidency. Yeah. Chris, you were calling Jerry early. You called Shiv a couple weeks in a I row. Did. I called Shiv the first week. I said, any, I said Tom, Tom and Shiv win in episode six, Living Plus. Uh, okay. I said Tom and Shiv would win, so I win. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you I've do win. I know I, I did not say Tom, not yeah. one single time. Yeah. And that is, you get it. You get the sushi. <laughs> I will I will <laughs> buy it for you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I think we didn't, we are. We, we would be ris- remiss not to mention another major character who we haven't really discussed this episode. But before we close out, in terms of winners and losers, one of the big surprising winners, at least for now, is Greg. Yeah, and that even barely made sense in the episode. Honestly, kudos to Matthew McFadden for his final speech, because I thought Greg was a goner after he Judased Matson and told Kendall, who he always did have a sort of this like weird fascination and obsession with Kendall. Um, and he sold Matson down the river, told Kendall that Shiv was out, and you think it's going to blow up in his face, but... Tom and Greg probably have the best relationship of any two people on the show. Well, I think you said it kind of on uh, about other people, Joy, but you said that, you know, Shiv understands Tom. And I think Tom and Greg, or Tom at least understands Greg. And that is a really important dynamic to have in these kind of trenches. I thought that Greg's character got a bit too cartoony at times this season. Mm-hmm. Or not that he, like, his character changed from previous seasons, but given how grim and heavy the stakes were this season, his little comedic interludes didn't quite land. But I think this last moment, I mean, the great bit of callback with the 
the, the, the sticker. The sticker was, yeah. On his forehead. <laughs> Greg Owens. Um, I'm keeping you. Or I claim Tom, you. Yeah. But that, yes, that is part of it, I think, is that he, uh, Tom, Tom yeah. owns Greg. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. what it, what is this saying? You know, you, 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 uh, you can't make a Tomlet without breaking some Gregs. I mean, <laughs> exactly. And, he and this will is always how, have that. And this is how these people get built. Yeah. You know, these kind of feckless, just sort of empty suit people. I mean, maybe Carl was that at one point. No, no, Carl was a great innovator in cable in the 90s. <laughs> yes, so I shouldn't never say forget. that. Was, was Frank like voice. that at some point? <laughs> you know, who knows? But like, but like, I have no doubt that in the fictional universe of this show, in 20 years time, Greg is Tom or maybe worse or maybe more powerful or whatever. Like, being a useful idiot to someone more powerful than you um, has clearly benefited Tom and pr- will probably benefit Greg as it benefits many, I don't know, uh, legacy fucking Ivy League, ki- exactly. League kids who get finance jobs out of college <laughs> in our in our world. I mean, that's like the chain of command, right? It's like Tom is, Matson is on top of the world. Tom is beta to Matson and like knows that he's beta, but Tom needs a beta and Greg's always been his beta, someone that he can sort of like pass down the commands from the king down and make Greg do his bidding. And he was never going to let Greg backstabbing him, you know, get in the way of having that cushion, that person there to sort of do his bidding and to pick on. It's really kind of sad if you think about, you know, that trickle down of abuse and power and how it's very like hazing. It is very like putting your time on the CAA mailroom floor and eventually you get to go all the way to the top because you've suffered so much abuse and people bring you up and that's sort of what Tom is doing to Greg which you could look at it as sort of sweet as friendship or you could look at it as I know that you'll do whatever I say and I'm gonna I've made your life hell and this is my present to you so you're saying that Max should have a Bethany Frankel-esque competition series where Greg finds his beta. Yes. Yeah, people yeah, so compete to be the next beta at, Let's I get guess, Jess Jordan Gojo. in there. Let's yeah. get let's get all of our favorite. Yeah. Maybe Hugo, because he won't have a job soon, it seems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, poor Hugo. Well, not poor Hugo. Hugo yeah. sucks. Everyone sucks. Everyone's horrible on this show. Yet I'll miss them all so much. Yes, I will too. Well, that does it for this episode of Still Watching, but we are not quite done yet with Succession. We have a bonus episode coming to you soon, a really cool interview that you're going to want to listen to. As ever, you can email us any questions, concerns, feelings of injustice about how things ended (laughs) uh, for the Roy kids at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. And you can find me on Twitter at Joy Press. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Bob Mallory. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back soon. Looking forward to seeing you then. Who the hell calls us the incredible fuckbutter bandwagon? Everyone. Really? Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
Flex.